If your heart was not yet uh, turned toward this season, you ought to be a step closer now after all of that we just sang together. It is official now, I can say it, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It moves so fast. It's like I start saying it as soon as I can. You know what I mean? Because it starts moving fast. I really do hope that you are enjoying this season. Um, It could be worse. You could be um, living in the deep south, trapped in your home with a half inch of snow, right? That that could be your story. Um, that, That was my story growing up. That, that's really, uh, I grew up in the South, and I only remember a handful of times when, when the snow actually fell. And so I, I enjoy it when, when snow comes around here sometimes. I, I remember it one time when I was just a little, little kid, and it snowed enough that it covered stuff, and we could actually, you know, sled and do some of that. And then I remember it happening a couple of times as I got older and even was able to drive. Um, the snow would fall. We would either make sure school was canceled or we would call in to work, right? Call in to our boss and make sure that no one was coming because it was too dangerous to get there. And as soon as our boss said, yeah, nobody's coming, then we would all go duck hunting. It was too dangerous to go to work. You know what I'm saying? Um, th- those are kind of the memories, the few that I have of uh, growing up with no snow. I didn't come here to tell you about snow. I came here to tell you a little bit about the end. And so I welcome you to this series, and I want you to know up front, this series is not about being scared. This series is about being prepared. Now, I want to go ahead and say, we'll say this probably at the beginning of every one of these times together as we we work our way through this month. Um, We certainly are going to read a ton of scripture again today. Because um, I don't know what's going to happen without, without what the Scripture says. But even when we read the Scripture, you understand that there are parts of understanding the end that we simply are trying to interpret what we're reading. Right? We're trying to understand it. I'm saying that because I believe with all of my heart there are people who love Jesus just as much as you and I do who might interpret it a little different. They really might in terms of trying to fill in some blanks and understand how this works together. That's okay. We don't have to agree on all of those details when the details are not there. We can continue to love each other. Here's what I know and here's what I would stand our ground on. We believe in regards to the end, we are given a series of snapshots, pictures. Here's what will happen. And it is to show us Jesus wins. He wins. And it is to invite you and I to make sure we choose the right team. That's why it's given to us. And so I'm going to dig right in today. I got some cool stuff to show you. Um, We're going to start in a place that maybe will surprise you a little bit because we're not going to start at the end of your Bible. We're actually going to back up into the middle of your Bible And I want to tell you a story about Daniel. This thing's acting up on me. I'll just keep messing with it, okay? Daniel. Um, The story of Daniel happens some 2,600 years ago. 2,600. That sounds like a long time, right? Which is going to be absolutely remarkable when you hear what happens in this story. 
Daniel's story is that God's people, Israel, are in captivity in Babylon. The reason they're in captivity is because they have rebelled against God on a regular basis and God allows the Babylonians to bring them into captivity. In captivity, there is a king called Nebuchadnezzar. You probably recognize his name. To spell it is a whole different story. But Nebuchadnezzar in our story today has a dream. And after having the dream, he wakes up troubled by what he has seen. And he says to the wise men of his kingdom, I want you to tell me what my dream was and then I want you to interpret it. Now, the wise men are like, okay, now wait, wait, wait a minute. This is not how this normally works. It normally works that people have dreams. They tell us what the dreams are, and then we interpret it. And he's like, uh-uh, not this time. You're going to tell me what my dream is, and then you're going to interpret it. Now, I'm not saying that Nebuchadnezzar is a wise man, but I am saying I understand. I think what he's doing here, if you can tell me what I dreamed, then I'm a probably a little less leery that you are making up the solution to my dream. If I tell you my dream, you can make up anything. But if you can tell me my dream first, then I'm probably going to buy into maybe you know what you're talking about. And by the way, if you can't interpret my dream, if you can't tell me what it was, I'm going to cut you up in little pieces. Isn't the Bible beautiful? And he does. Starts chopping. Well, Daniel is one of those wise men of the kingdom. And we're going to pick up the conversation in Daniel chapter 2, verse 26. The king asked Daniel, okay? Now, now, here's what's happened. Daniel hears, here's what's going on, and guess what Daniel does? Prays. That's a good place to start, right? If, if the answer is, I need to know the dream and what it means, or chop, chop, then I'm praying, And here's what happens. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven. Oh my goodness, that is like one of the great lines, I think, of the book of Daniel. There is a God in heaven in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. And so Daniel says, King, here's what I know. You had a dream about a huge statue. And what we're about to see is that this this huge statue had different pieces. So you got the the head and then you got the chest and then you got the legs, all the the different pieces of of the statue, of the body. Each piece was a different substance And each piece represents a world empire. And as each piece is introduced, that world empire is going to conquer the empire before it. This is is what he saw. So Daniel says, for example, King Nebuchadnezzar, you saw a head that was made of gold. And he turns to Nebuchadnezzar and he goes, and you, king, are that head of gold. And you know Neb's like, yes, I am. Yes, I am. I mean, that's what we know about Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's like, King, this is you. The, the first part of the statue that you see, the head that's made out of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. And the history 
reveals the truth that that really did show to be the Babylonian Empire. We're approximating some dates here, 626 to 539 B.C. That's when the Babylonian Empire reigns. But Daniel says, but there was a second piece of that statue. It was the chest and the arms. And they were made of silver. And so what what is reflected in history is, sure enough, the next world empire that that appears on the scene is this Medo-Persian empire. Two pieces. You've got the Medes and you've got the Persians. They come together. I I think there's imagery. You've got a chest and two arms. And so there's there's a link between these two nations who who are brought together and really in a remarkable story. How in the world they ever overcame the Babylonians, but they did it just like the dream said would happen. The estimated dates are about 539 to 331 BC. One of the famous um, leaders of this empire was was a guy by the name of Cyrus. Perhaps you know him as Cyrus the Great. Now, there's an interesting piece in scripture where Isaiah the prophet makes this statement. I'm not going to put it on the screen for you, but you can read it this week if you want to. In Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah records something that God says that goes like this. God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and all and of the temple, let the foundations be laid. Isaiah records what God says about Cyrus. Now, you want to know the cool thing about that? Isaiah said that 150 years before it happened, which means that Cyrus hasn't even been born yet, much less named. And God already knew what his name would be, already knew the role that he would play and already said, this is what Cyrus is going to do in the part of this big plan. Okay, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. The next piece in the, in the, in the statue is the belly, the stomach, and the thighs. And they, we're told, are made of bronze, which would represent in history the Grecian Empire, about 331 to 63 B.C., Now, you understand, when Daniel is giving the interpretation of the dream, Greece is not an empire like we think about Greece being. In fact, it's just these little city-states. I mean, there's not much to it at all. And 250 years before Greece becomes Greece, God says, here's what's going to happen. Here's going to be a world empire. When you think about Greece, what what leader do you think of? Alexander the Great, absolutely. There's the picture, the the story of Alexander the Great. I mean, what what he does as a young man to where he's in his his 30s, he he dies in his 30s, and he had conquered everything there was to conquer. The stories are he weeps because he's got nothing else to conquer. What a picture of what wouldn't satisfy. 
What a picture of what was always empty. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second before we get the next piece of the statue. Anybody notice that as we're moving down the statue, we got gold, we got silver, we got bronze. There are going to be more. But as we move down the substances, they decrease in value. Right? Because if you had a choice of the three, right, you want gold. Right? Glad your pastor can help you out today. That's what, that's what you want. The, the value decreases. But the strength increases. The value decreases, but the strength increases. A lot of people believe, a lot of scholars believe, that there is even written into this, this picture of God saying, as as the culture continues to develop, as society continues to flow, there is going to be this diminishing of of moral value. There is going to be this diminishing of, of personal value, and what we will trade it for is power and so we'd rather have power than we would values and so I mean look at you look around a culture in which we live where where you know whether it's in a place of work and you got to secure a position and, and you would rather take the power and not worry about sacrificing your integrity or a relationship that you really want to happen. You so want this relationship to be strong and so who cares about morality? Who cares? It is the picture. Maybe Maybe. The next piece in the dream and on the statue were the legs. And the legs are made of iron. And they represent the Roman Empire about 63 BC to AD 476. Again, when Daniel says this, we are 500 years from Rome being Rome. 500 years. God's saying, is this what's going to happen? It's so far out there. Now, isn't it interesting that Rome made its chariots, its swords, its shields out of what? Iron. Just like the picture that's portrayed. Now, the question might be, if the two arms were significant to the Medo-Persian Empire, then like, like, or, or, the, or the two legs, are there any significance to that? And it could be because what we know from history is that the Roman Empire had this massive division west and east. Which might explain the next part of the statue, which is the feet. And, and what we're told about the feet is that the feet were partial iron, but also clay. And it even talks about the toes being that way, partial iron, partial clay. It'll have some strength in it, but, but you will also see a, a brittle to it. Now, I'm telling you, I think history is fascinating. But it's even more fascinating when God says something about it 500 years before something begins, and then you watch it unfold. The, the Roman influence that has taken place in our world because when the division take, takes place, there is a, an influence to the West that influenced us. It's centered in Rome. But there was also an influence to the East that centered in a place called Constantinople. That was the capital. And it became what's called the Byzantine Empire. Now, I know you don't really, maybe you don't care. You don't care. But here's what I want you to see. Rome to the West, for even people like us, a long way away from there, there's influence. You ever heard of something called the Senate? Where in the world do you think we got that from? The whole picture of a republic, courts, laws, military, 
Even the bird that we claim, right? The eagle. Look it up. There is an amazing Roman connection to the eagle. There are so many pictures of influence that that has impacted even us as a country. The same is true for the West, but in in regards to to Europe, when the Holy Roman Empire did did what they did and and the seat of of the imperial government was transferred from France to, to Spain and then eventually it ended up in Germany. Anybody know what the leaders of Germany were called? They were called Kaisers. Kaisers, which is the German spelling of the word what? Caesar. To the east, the same thing happens. The Byzantines, in about 1453, Constantinople falls, and the government is transferred to Russia, where there are leaders called czars which is the Russian spelling of what? Caesar. I'm saying, isn't it interesting that in every direction, Rome's influence, iron and clay, this mixture of Roman influence, I also find it interesting that both of those divisions ended in the same year, about 1918, when the Russian czar was overthrown by the, the Bolsheviks and when, when the German Empire, the Kaisers, end at the end of World War I. I. I'm just saying all of that to go, maybe God was right. Maybe he was right. Maybe we will see this Roman impact all the way up into Christ's return. By the way, on most feet, there are 10 toes. I'm saying most because some of y'all are special, all right? But there, there's 10 toes. And it'll be interesting because Daniel's going to come back in a couple of chapters, and he's going to talk about the imagery changes, but it's the same picture. He'll talk about 10 horns, which are both mentioned in, in, in Revelation chapter 13 and in Revelation 17. And it, it's what I told you last week about this 10-nation confederacy that's going to be a part of this whole business when Jesus returns. The Roman Empire just continues to have this impact all the way to the toes. But then Daniel sees something else. Then Daniel sees a rock. And that rock smashed every other piece of that statue. And it grew into this mountain that fills the earth, he says. Check it out, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. All of these kingdoms have come along, but the next one that comes along destroys the one that was before. But God in heaven is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, 
and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, I gave you that, first of all, because I want you to know how absolutely remarkable your God is. But I also want to set up the picture of where we need to finish this in Daniel. Because my question is kind of like this. If all that stuff happened in the past, just like God said it would happen, then do you think maybe we should put some stock into what he says is going to happen in the future? I mean, come on, if he could call all those empires just like they unfolded, I mean, even to the detail of, of Rome's power, right, it, all the way to the toes, man, if he can be that far out front in it all, what about what God says is next? Well, Daniel wants to know what's next. Now, honestly, we could hang out on the rock for like, I don't know, six months or so, right? Because you know there's enough scripture that talks about the rock and maybe another day. We'll just do a series on the rock and we'll come back and talk about that. But Daniel wants to know more about when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? And, and the Bible really does have a lot to say about the eternal kingdom to come. Now, yes, I believe that the kingdom of God really is God's reign in the hearts of those who belong to him. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God and what can be seen and not seen. And so when, when we turn in faith to Jesus and entrusting our lives to him and he comes to live within us, he adopts us as his family, he makes us his forever, we become a part of the kingdom of God. It is the reign and rule of God in the hearts of his people. But when I read scripture, I also believe there is a kingdom of God that is literally coming to earth. Something different than, than, than it is connected, but it's different because when we read about the, this kingdom, it happens suddenly. Now, right now, the kingdom is growing. It's growing in the hearts of people all the time, man. That's what makes us celebrate more than anything else. People give their life to Jesus, the kingdom grows. And so it's happening slowly across the planet. But there is coming a sudden kingdom. And it is centered in Jerusalem. Anybody watch the news this week? Even if you didn't watch the news, right? It's like, what in the world is the big deal about this little place called Jerusalem? We'll kind of dig into some of that even more next week. But if, I, I just thought, what incredible timing. What incredible timing. I'm glad we could plan that out. You know what I'm saying? I'm glad. I am. I'm glad we could coordinate on that and, and make sure that uh, everybody was on the same page. <laughs> Daniel wants to know that rock. When is that eternal kingdom? When's that going to happen? So Daniel skipped to chapter 9. Skip to chapter 9. And this is what we're given in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, 
son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. That's when, it, that's when this happens. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. And so Daniel wants to know, when, when is this kingdom coming? What he knows right now is he's in this Babylonian kingdom. They are in captivity. And Daniel does something beautiful that you should do. When he wants to know answers, he goes to Scripture. And so he goes to Scripture because he knows what the prophet Jeremiah has declared. There is going to be this 70 years of a people in captivity. And he's looking at the clock and he's going, this thing ought to be winding down. This should be getting close. And so he's saying, God, how does this work together? When is this going to be? And so we're going to skip to verse 20 of Daniel chapter 9. Because in between is his prayer, and you, you, can re, you can read that. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. That would be cool. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? You're praying, like, whoop, there's Gabriel. And right after you write changed clothes and all that stuff, then, then it'd be cool to talk to him. But that, that'd be pretty wild. That'd be pretty wild. Gabriel, by the way, seems to be in on all the timing stuff. He makes announcements to moms. Hey, gonna have a baby? Gabriel's the guy. He, he, is, the, he is the angel who, who communicates those things. Verse 22. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel... I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And then this is what we're going to unpack with just the rest of our moments together. Seventy sevens are decreed. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And so here's what I want you to see. Daniel's prayer, his prayer in the context of going, God, these 70 years, where are we at in all that? God answers the prayer. But he does it using terminology of 70 sevens. He says, Daniel, it's going to be 70 sevens before the eternal kingdom comes. And so I want you to zero in on this phrase, 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Daniel, that's when it's going to happen. You want to know when this eternal kingdom's going to happen? You want to know when all this mess is done? 70 Sevens. Now the word, I think, really is best translated seven. Sometimes you'll see it in certain translations translated weeks, 70 weeks, but it's not the same word. It really is sevens. And think of sevens like a dozen, all right? I don't mean it means the same. I'm just saying when we say a dozen, you go, a dozen what? Okay? It, it, so when we're talking about 77s, the question is 77s of what? 
And due to the context of what we're talking, most scholars would agree we're talking about years. We're talking about years. Just like the 70 years in captivity, God's saying there's going to be 77s of years, or we would say 490 years. 490 years. And what he says is those 77s are going to be decreed. The word is to cut out. 77s are going to be cut out. There's going to be this period of time in history that God cuts out for a purpose. And what I don't want you to miss is is it says 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. And I personally believe a lot of what we keep our eye on when we're looking at the end. How does the end time unfold? It has to do with Israel and Jerusalem. You got to keep your eyes on Israel and you keep your eyes on Jerusalem. But the effect will be for the whole world. And what you see happen with Israel and what you see happen in Jerusalem through one nation, the whole world will be blessed. That's what he told Abraham a long time ago. So here's here's a little bit of, of what Gabriel gives him. Verse 25. Verse 25. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Everybody say restore and rebuild. I don't want you to forget that. Restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one. Everybody say anointed one. The ruler comes there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench but in times of trouble after the 62 sevens the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary the end will come like a flood war will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven in the middle of the seven he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering and at the temple he will set up the abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him let's close in prayer You got it, right? Like, okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let's see if we can paint some pictures. So what we know is that we have this period of time, right? 77s, so 490 years. And what we just picked up from that scripture is that there will be seven sevens, there will be 62 sevens, and there will be one seven, right? We got a seven, we got a 62, and we got a one. So the seven, we're thinking 49 years. The 62 would be 400 and... 34 years, and then the one seven would be seven years. And so somehow, there seems to be this division. Now, here's what I want to remind you. Who is this about? 
Israel and right, Jerusalem. And so I, I don't believe we're working with a Gregorian calendar. That's ours, all right? I really do believe that what we're probably working with here is more of the basis of what the Jewish calendar would be, which is not 365 days. We're dealing with a 360-day lunar calendar, all right? Now, just hang on. I promise if you're going, what? Just hold on. Just hold on. Now, what, what he told us is that there will be 69 sevens, so that's here, and he says it's going to begin with something. What would it begin with? Restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, that's what he said would begin it. Begin it. So let's do an R and R. An R and R. A rebuild and restore of Jerusalem. And he says it's going to end this 69 weeks, is going to end with something, the anointed one. So we'll call him A1. And you'll be hungry for steak. All right? So you, you see, that I think that we're just trying to draw out the picture of what we're given. We got 490 years, 70 weeks of sevens. We've got a group of seven, we got a group of 62, and we got a group of one. And it says it's going to start with the restore and rebuild, and this, this 69 weeks of sevens is going to end with the anointed one. It is as though God is saying there is this period of time that I've cut out. The time's going to start when the restore and the rebuild happens, and then the time's going to end on that 69 weeks when the anointed one comes. So, is that, I mean, did it happen? The Bible tells us, and I'll, I'll show you the reference here in just a minute, we, we won't put it up yet, but there's this guy named Nehemiah who was what was called the cupbearer to the king. What it, what it means is he tasted everything before the king ate it or drank it, just in case somebody was trying to kill the king. So just in case somebody was trying to take him out, that was Nehemiah's role. And so Nehemiah got close to the king. I mean, here's a guy that puts his life on the line on a regular basis. The king gets used to seeing him. There was a day that came where the king looked at Nehemiah and said, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? And it says that Nehemiah was afraid but through praying, he went for it and he said, well, king, to tell you the truth, I'm sad because my, my people back home, my city back home is in ruins and I want to see it restored and rebuilt. The king not only said, okay, the king made sure that Nehemiah had the supplies to do what he needed to do and he provided the safety for Nehemiah to go back and do it. Now, come on, if that's not God, I, how in the world could God place a guy like Nehemiah in such a place of influence, build a relationship, and then cause the heart of a, of a king that doesn't even, doesn't even know God to go, okay, we'll help you get that done. Nehemiah chapter two tells us that took place in the month of Nisan. Now, I know that makes you think car. I know it thinks you, makes you think, think vehicle. Nissan would have been what corresponds to our calendar in a March-April kind of frame. And when you read how all that unfolded, Nehemiah going back, how everything was rebuilt, scholars 
would, would guesstimate, they, they really believe that when you look at our calendar, that, that restore and rebuild, see if I can get to this, takes place on March, oh, do this again. On March 5th, 444 B.C. March 5th, 444 B.C. And what we know is that Nehemiah goes back and he rebuilds the wall. Anybody remember how long the wall took to build? What did he get it done in? 52 days. That, what an incredible project. It is one of the most remarkable leadership pictures we've ever seen. 52 days he gets that wall rebuilt. But the text says it's going to be this period of seven weeks. And the reason is because the wall could be rebuilt, but there were still houses that need to be rebuilt. There, there was still a structure that needed to be put together. And that's why we read what we read in Daniel that it even gets specific. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench. Did you catch that? Like, why did he tell us it's a trench? It's because he's saying all these details are going to be completed within this seven sevens or 49 years. But then there's going to be another 434 years. There's going to be another 62 weeks until we get to the anointed one. Now, let me give you the Hebrew transliteration of the anointed one. You ready for this? M A S I Y A H. What does that look like? Messiah. That's who we're talking about here. And so, in this 483 years, he says, going to happen between the restore and rebuild. And the anointed one coming, um, for those of you who are curious, that's 173,880 days, right? There will be a test next week, all right? The question is, okay, so when does that end? Well, here's when it ends. March 30, A.D. 33 which is the day that Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, I want you to go to this certain village and I want you to find a donkey. When you get there and you find that donkey, you bring it back to me. If they ask you why, you tell them I need it. I love that part. I just do. It's like if they ask you why, you just tell them I need it. It's going to be all right. And so sure enough, they go, they find the donkey, they bring it back to where Jesus is, they put Jesus on the donkey and it says that people were spreading their coats in the path, as Jesus on that donkey is riding into Jerusalem. Here's what it says, Luke 19, verse 37, March 30, AD 33. That's how we would record it on our calendar. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives. Can I get you to pay attention to the Mount of Olives? Because that's going to come back for us several times. The Mount of of olives. It is one of the mounts in Jerusalem, which I'll tell you about those as we keep going. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes 
in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So you get the picture. Jesus is riding in. The, the, the coats are going on the, on the ground and they're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We often refer to this as the triumphal entry. It is when Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah. He is presenting himself as the anointed one. And they are singing it. Blessed is the king. This is the anointed one. God who has come to you 483 years to the day from the moment that the king said to Nehemiah here's your papers man go restore and rebuild I don't know there's some part of that that ought to at some point leave us on our face before God Daniel says in, back in chapter 9, verse 26, watch this, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Now, how long ago did Daniel write this? More than almost 2,600 years. The anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. And so here's the part that, that kind of gets interesting for us in terms of, look, we, we got this something that's gonna happen after, something that's gonna happen after these 69 years, but it's before the one. It's before it. And what happens? He says he, he would be put to death and then he will have nothing. And the question is, what does that mean? That, what does that mean that the anointed one will have nothing? He is the anointed one. Well, remember, we're talking about Israel and we're talking about Jerusalem. Does that mean that he will not have his people? In the sense that here's what John says. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Verse 12 says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. It's the reason that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem when he rides in on that donkey. He's like, if they had just could see it, that, that the kingdom is about peace, but they would reject him. And so there is this picture that I saw a long time ago. I don't know who first thought this up, but I think it's really cool. It, the picture is, it is as though when we read in Scripture, God, since Genesis, has always been on the phone with Israel. They are his people. And he speaks to them and he speaks through them. But when the Messiah comes... But then he is rejected by his own people, the Jews. It is as though God puts Israel on hold. And he picks up the line for guess who? The church. That's who he just described in John chapter 12. Those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Not born of natural descent. But a human, not, not, this is their born of God, the church. And so there is this picture that, that 
what there appears to be is this gap that exists after those 69 weeks. Now, please understand this. You know what it's like when you're on the phone with someone and then someone else calls you. You have a choice at that point, right? On a lot of phones, you have a choice. It will give you a choice. Do you want to cancel the, 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 the call, right, that, that you're on, or do you want to leave them on hold? Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, right? Here's what I want you to know, with God it works. Because listen to me, God has not hung up on Israel. He hasn't. But it's as though the line switched and now we live in this time where through his church, God is building a family and we are going forth with the mission of telling the good news of Jesus. But it's it said back in, in, in chapter 9 that the people of the ruler to come is going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. And you know what happens. Maybe A.D. 70, you, you got the Roman Empire with Titus who comes into the city of, of Jerusalem. They wipe out the city. They wipe out the, the sanctuary. But I also think this refers, who is the ruler to come? But when you read about Daniel and you read in the, in the Revelation, it is the Antichrist that we talked about last week. He, he comes, the, the little horn of, of Daniel is, is what he's called. And it says that the people of the ruler to come, this, this ten nations that come out of the Roman Empire, this is the way I would describe it. Even up until the very end, when it comes to Jerusalem and when it comes to Israel, there will always be conflict, always be war. But then this is what happens, verse 27 of Daniel chapter nine. We're almost done, you guys are doing good. He will confirm a covenant with many for, what does it say? That's good, because we, we have one more seven, right? It's like he said there were 77s and we had 77 that, that got us the first part of, of the restore and rebuild. And, and then we got the, the section until the anointed one comes, but we got one more seven to go. Yes, we do. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. The one more seven that I think Daniel refers to here is the same period of time that we read about Jesus says in the Gospels in Matthew and what Revelation talks about. It is what we call the tribulation. That begins, the scripture says, even right here, with a covenant. Do you see that? It said the Antichrist, he's going to confirm a covenant with many for one seven. What we know from, from reading the scripture is that he is going to make a pact with Israel. It's going to be a pact for peace. They're still looking for it. There was Jesus on that donkey riding into the city. This was about a kingdom of peace that had come to them. They rejected it in that moment and they're still looking for it. Still looking for peace. And so they will make this covenant with him. At the signing of that covenant, I believe it is the picture that God picks up the phone again. Now, I don't know how long this gap's going to be 
between the, the anointed one that comes and Israel rejects and the church, we call it often the church age comes to be. Here we are as the church. We are on mission. We are spreading the good news. One of these days, the Antichrist is going to appear on the scene. And when he appears on the scene and the covenant is signed, when the covenant of, of peace is signed, that's when God picks up the phone again and boop, we are back on an eternal calendar talking to Israel. Now, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we don't need to be on the phone with him anymore because now we see him face to face. That's my hope. Now, I'm not totally convinced that happens at the very beginning of the tribulation. It might happen in the middle. It could. I get it. There are people who love Jesus who just really strong feel that, and it might be, I'm saying. But at some point, we won't need the phone, right, because we're going to see him face to face. But what we know is he picks up the phone again, and Israel, again, is the center of the picture. And for seven years, this tribulation unfolds. And at the midpoint, at the midpoint, and I'll draw it out better for you next time. I just can't do it now. At the midpoint, Daniel calls it a time, times, and a half time. In Revelation 12, it's 1,260 days. In Revelation chapter 13, it's 42 months. I'm saying there's enough of it in your Bible that you see the picture happening. On the second half of that seven years, it's what's called the Great Tribulation. Because the Antichrist, who first shows up saying, I'm your man, he takes his mask off. And everybody sees him for who he is. And he does what the one he belongs to do, does. He, he steals, he, he kills, he destroys. At the same time during that three and a half years, the Bible says that God's wrath is poured out on the earth. I'm telling you, the second half of the tribulation is going to be a period of time unlike anything this earth has ever, ever seen. But can I leave you this week? And I promise, if you got the guts to come back, we're, we're, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you even better. I'm going to leave you with some good news. We'll pick it up here next week. At the end of the seven years, right here, something really, really, really good happens. The king of all kings returns just like he promised and I believe it's going to happen just like he said it would happen he is going to be visible every eye is going to see him when he comes and his feet are going to touch down in the city of Jerusalem Anybody want to guess where specifically his feet are going to touch down in the city? The Mount of Olives. That's exactly right. The Mount of Olives. Now, how cool is that? Not, not only, not only was that the moment where Jesus rides into the city going, I, I am the anointed one. And even for a brief moment, they're singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That happened on the Mount of Olives. That moment when Jesus is gathered with his disciples and he's saying, I'm calling you to be my witnesses. I'm empowering you to go. And then the next thing they know, zoop, off he goes into the clouds. Guess where that was? Mount of Olives, and two guys are standing there going, 
dudes, why are you looking up into the sky? Same Jesus who just left is coming back the same way. Well, guess what? He literally comes back the same way. Steps foot in the city of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, right? The foot is down. The foot is down. He is back. And he's taken the planet back. When he does, it ushers in the battle of Armageddon. That's what ends the tribulation. The beast and the false prophet after that battle are thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. And I, I, I say this is the place where Christians are allowed to shout, hell yes, because that's the answer. Where is our enemy going to end up? Hell yes. The one, I'm telling you, the one who has always destroyed. Just think about what he has unleashed with just this body. Just what we know about an enemy who steals and kills and destroys. He has tried to take some of your family, right? He has tried to mess up some of your marriages. I mean, you think about what an enemy has done on that day. Hell will be his home forever. And we will shout yes. When that is done, there is a thousand year reign. Jesus and the saints on the earth where it is on earth as it is in heaven. And after the thousand year reign will be the final judgment. We'll go back. The final judgment and then the eternal state. If that doesn't do something for your trust in God. I mean, not only, not only can he tell you what's going to happen, but when he starts doing it with exact days, just so you know, he owns them all. And he can give you world empires that don't even exist yet. And he can call kings by name who aren't even born yet. Come on, if he can do that, and you trust him, you are going to be okay. You can be okay. Some of you, this ought to drive you to some hope today, because some of you are in some messes. I get it. You're in some dark places. There are some, some things that maybe have happened to you, your family. There's just some stuff, right? There is an enemy who, for now, he, he still roams this planet. He, he's still, there. there is destruction. But, but come on, if, if, if God can show us what he's shown us in these few moments together. He's got your day too. This ought to help us see the temporal versus the eternal, right? Because even if it's overwhelming to you in this moment, this ain't forever. This ain't forever. And if you're trusting him, I mean, there is, there is an eternity with him. This ought to help us for Christmas, people. We're trying to celebrate something eternal with a whole bunch of temporal focus at times. And this ought to just recenter our hearts to what this entire thing is about. And you're not getting all bent out of shape and overwhelmed over stuff that is temporary. And then it ought to challenge us to pray some crazy high risk prayers. Because this ain't about, God, what can you give me? God, what can you give me? God, what can you give me? This is about, God, where can you send me? Where can you send us? God, where can you send us? Because we realize the time we're closer than we ever have been before. You don't need to be scared. 
But are you prepared? Are you ready? Because that day is coming. There is a God in heaven. And one day he's coming back with heaven. God, I thank you. The fact is, if, if, you, if you could do what we just read, God, if you could know those things, God, if you and your sovereign hand could orchestrate those things, God, if, if everything that you say is trustworthy and true, and God, it really is the case that across this room, God, across the hearts of people who are, who are going to hear, God, this, this talk today, God, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the size of the hurt, God, God you're bigger. And there is hope. And today, God, I'm asking that you would speak that hope into hearts. I'm asking that you would give us the, the, the glimpse, the difference between that which is temporary and that which is eternal. And God, I'm asking you to, to call us as your people to, to pray the high-risk prayers, God, of where can you send us. God, the mission that you've called us to, God, create in us an urgency because the day is coming and it is sooner than it's ever been before. We will stand before you. God, may we see the hope and may we see the peace today in a kingdom that never ends. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray it.